Hello, and welcome to Suite 212, putting the arts in their social, cultural, political and historical context here on Resonance 104.4 FM. Still London's best and brightest radio station after two decades on the air, even if the ongoing pandemic means we can't broadcast live from the studio at the moment. I'm your host, Juliet Jakes, bringing you a show to commemorate Holocaust Remembrance Day, held every year in January, and this year on the 27th. Today, we're going to focus on how film became an important tool, first for the Nazis to minimise their crimes, and then, at the end of the war, for the Allies to convey the scale of the atrocities to the local and global populations, and since then to understand how the final solution came to pass, and to guard against the possibility of its ever happening again. Joining me to discuss this is Dr Libby Saxton, reader in film studies at Queen Mary University of London. Her research explores connections between cinema, ethics and philosophical critiques and defences of images, with a focus on visual legacies of genocide and war. Her first monograph, Haunted Images, Film, Ethics, Testimony and the Holocaust, published by Wallflower in 2008, debated the ethical implications of different ways of bearing witness to the Holocaust in cinema and what they reveal about the nature of images. Film and Ethics, Foreclosed Encounters, published by Routledge in 2010 and co-authored with Lisa Downing, also reconsidered the aesthetic qualities of film through the lens of ethical theory. She co-edited Holocaust Intersections, Genocide and Visual Culture at the New Millennium, published by Legenda in 2013, with Axel Bangers and Robert Gordon. Her most recent monograph, No Power Without an Image, Icons Between Photography and Film, published by Edinburgh University Press in 2020, is the first detailed study of what filmic images can tell us about iconic photographs. It traces the journey of seven celebrated snapshots taken between 1936 and 1968, including one depicting Holocaust survivors, through the paper cinema of magazines into newsreels and documentary, fiction and experimental film. Libby teaches an undergraduate module on the Holocaust and colonialism in mainly French cinema, and is the supervisor of two PhDs that offer new insights into the afterlife of the genocide in film. So Libby, welcome to Suite 212. Thank you, Juliet. It's very good to be here and discussing this important subject with you. Absolutely. Um, it's really, really nice to have you here and I'm very glad you could you could join me for a subject that I've wanted to cover on Suite 212 since its inception. Obviously, we've done quite a few uh, retrospectives of um, historical contexts for the arts or national and cultural contexts. And these often involve me giving quite a long introduction to the listener to lay that out. Um, in this case, I'm going to assume a certain familiarity on, on your part, uh, the listener, uh, and we will doubtless go into more detail uh, throughout the programme. So I'm going to keep this introduction as brief as I can. After centuries of rising anti-Semitism across Europe, spanning from the expulsion of the Jews from England in 1290 to the Dreyfus Affair in late 19th century France, all of which are outlined in Hannah Arendt's Origins of Totalitarianism, if you want a longer conversation, uh, the Nazis came to power in Germany in January 1933, aided partly by the stabbed in the bat myth that blamed Jews for the German defeat in the First World War. With hatred of Jews, LGBT people, communists and other undesirables built into their ideology, the Nazis opened the first German concentration camp at Dachau on the 22nd of March 1933 and passed the Enabling Act two days later, which effectively allowed Hitler to rule by decree. The boycott of Jewish businesses began on the 1st of April and two years later, the racist and anti-Semitic Nuremberg laws were passed. 
Jewish businesses and other premises in Germany and Austria were ransacked on the Kristallnacht of the 9th and 10th of November 1938, with ghettos established to segregate Jews after the German invasion of Poland triggered World War II in September 1939. The Nazis discussed their final solution to the Jewish question at the Vansi Conference in Berlin in January 1942, as the Germans were capturing territories in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union. Paramilitary death squads killed about 1.3 million Jews in mass shootings and pogroms between 1941 and 45. By mid-1942, people were deported across Europe in sealed freight trains to extermination camps where, if they survived the journey, they were gassed, worked or beaten to death, killed by disease or medical experiments or on death marches. By May 1945, when the war ended and the camps were liberated, Germany and its collaborators had killed an estimated 11 million people in this way, including the Roma, people with disabilities, political dissidents and religious objectors, ethnic Poles, Soviet citizens and prisoners of war, LGBT people and around 6 million Jewish people. As I said, I kept that uh, introduction brief because I think a lot of our listeners will already be familiar with the history. I think a lot of people will also be familiar with Adorno's line about poetry and how there could be no poetry after Auschwitz. Obviously that line has uh, acquired a lot of resonance because of what it says about the beauty and subjectivity of poetry, maybe the kind of lightness of poetry as a form, uh, which he felt was not able to match up to the scale of the um, the horrors uh, that had just taken place, and indeed to the sort of premeditated, mechanized nature of it, and their very long term historical context. Um, so I wonder if you would like to maybe contextualize that line of Adorno's, and maybe say something about how film and the moving image perhaps was seen as as something that was much better able to portray what had just happened. Okay, sure. I th I think that um, it's a really good idea um, to start by um, with with mention at least of Adorno's statement because it re remains um, famous. It seems to have initiated or inaugurated a way of thinking about the legacy of the the camps of the genocide in, in um, or for art and representation um, in a a way that remains very influential. Um, so just to put it in context briefly, it's um, from 1949 um, and an essay titled Cultural Criticism and Society. And the actual quote is slightly different. It's to write poetry after Auschwitz is barbaric. So he's not talking about its impossibility. He's um, the, the context is a discussion of the dialectic between culture and barbarism and or civilization barbarism. And it has become a kind of shorthand for a certain, perhaps a modernist response to, um, or a modernist approach to Holocaust representation and what it, what it struggles to do, the challenge that um, the camps presented to it. But it is often uh, taken out of context. So it, it's worth um, thinking about, so in 1949, there were um, plenty of writers responding already in quite literary ways to the, um, Holocaust, so in, in poems, um, but there was there was also, as we're going to talk about later on, a um, widespread circulation of, of cinema, of particular kinds of images of the camps, including documentary images still at that time, though it was less, less prevalent then than it was um, um, in the years 1945 and 1946. In relation to um, the particular 
uh, distinctive resources of film and what that might bring to thinking about Holocaust representation that poetry doesn't. I mean, I think it, it's, you, you mentioned honesty, that's a, that's a great way of thinking about what both photography and film can offer in, in terms of our understanding of the Holocaust. But at the same time, I think it's really important to think about the ways in which film, like poetry, it can be an art form, involves mediation, involves shaping of reality, not simply um, a direct access to reality. And so the, um, the filmmakers and photographers, who both male and female who entered the camps in 1944, 1945, were having to make decisions they had um, about, from the outset, about form, about whether they could make a beautiful shot given what they what they found there so I think Adorno's reflections are, are relevant um, in that context too and it's perhaps also just worth mentioning that the indexicality of film and photography if you like so the the way in which unlike a written testimony um, the filmic image the photographic image at least the analog image in some way captures um, a direct imprint of a pro-filmic reality and in that sense the, a perception of it as functioning as some kind of proof or some kind of testimony remains very um, persistent so we, we continue even in this digital era to think about or to accord particular qualities of truthfulness to to film and photography and this is one of the reasons why film and photography were used and particularly film in the post-war trials so, so initially the Nuremberg um, trials the tribunal in 1945-1946 um, where there were also um, where there was also written testimony but there was a sense that filmic testimony um, would carry a particular force um, and would carry a particular um, kind of function of proof there and this this recurs in later trials including 1961 in the trial of Adolf Eichmann in Jerusalem. Yeah I think there's there's an awful lot that we're going to unpack there throughout the show. Due to the sheer volume of films that we could talk about, I think we're going to focus exclusively on documentaries in our conversation. Um, but it's worth mentioning that the first film to depict the camps was a British feature film called Night Train to Munich, made in 1940 by Carol Reed, who of course is most famous for The Third Man. So there's there's sort of proof there, if nothing else, that the knowledge of what was starting to happen in Germany went beyond the German borders and was picked up by the Allies. And a couple of, of early films uh, responding to the Holocaust were Mark Donskoy's The Unvanquished, which depicted um, events in Ukraine where the Nazi attacks on um, Jewish population were absolutely horrific. Orson Welles included footage of the camps in his film The Stranger, made in 1946. Um, but I think I want to start off by talking about documentary which obviously began before the end of the war with, with the Nazi treatment of the camps. And the Nazis made two propaganda films, Terrazin and Vesterbok, both in 1944, which were made in part to con Red Cross representatives and foreign governments into thinking the Jewish prisoners were being treated well. The film on Theresienstadt, uh, subtitled Der Führer schenkt den Juden eine Stadt, The Führer Gives the Cities of the Jews, was intended to be shown abroad. It was made by a German-Jewish prisoner, Kurt Geron, who was a noted actor in 
the Weimar period and the Czech prisoner Karol Pacheny uh, under coercion and close SS supervision. Um, it was completed in 1945, but was privately screened four times and uh, lost after the war. Um, it was it was made after the Red Cross had requested to visit Terezin in November 1943. And the Germans had organized cultural activities to give impression of happy, harmonious community. And indeed, um, if you look this film up, you can find a short clip on YouTube of uh, a football match being played at Terrazin. So I wondered if we could talk a little bit about those, um, those films and what they were kind of intended to do. Again, I think it's a really, um, it makes sense to think about these films in chronological order um, and there were, there were two films actually made in 1944 um, within the camps within uh, concentration and transit camps which which I think are worth mentioning here um, so the one about Theresienstadt um, as as you've said Julia it was titled as a um, document so in, in German a documentar film it's um, it titled, it announced itself as a documentary film, but in fact, it was anything but. And the techniques of filming uh, were um, those that we associate with really quite um, smooth running um, fiction filmmaking, well-funded. This was a well-funded film, as you, as you might imagine. So um, there were um, castings, there were um, very detailed plans for the film, there were, there were props. Um, specialists, there were people um, sorting out um, decors, um, everything was very meticulously planned, um, so it couldn't be further from, from the documentary that, that it was supposed to be. One of the things that is important to say about it is that it doesn't any longer exist as, as a complete film, um, so we're talking about something that is a, a particular kind of film object, a partial film object, like actually a number of um, films relating to the Holocaust um, and various historians, but in particular, the film historian Sylvie Landeperg, she's a French film histori historian, has um, done really important work on reconstructing the Theresienstadt film from a variety of sources, including, I think that about a third of the film has, has survived or we're aware of about a a third of the film, um, which can also be seen in various um, American archives. Um, but she has also worked with um, sources such as, um, quote, Garon's uh, personal uh, papers and so on, in order to, and uh, various other images, including photographs used to production stills effectively, so that she is, it's a work of reconstruction that film historians do to try to establish how the film was made. for. Contemporary viewers, it remains a very, very strange experience watching, looking at these images. You're looking at them, you're, you're viewing them in a different way from how you would normally view a film. You're looking for, because you're aware of the um, propaganda, um, idealized aspects of the images, you're looking for, you're scanning them closely for something that reveals, that betrays the actual nature of the images. So you're trying to find some kind of evidence in them or um Landerpeg talks about she suggests that you you can actually find traces of the real in this footage and she talks about the occasional furtive look to camera um, by some of the participants which breaks the illusion which which suggests their curiosity about the filmmaking process suggests that something's slightly awry um so so um there are, yeah, those traces of the real. Um, may I say something briefly about the, the Vesterbork film? So, so um, 
the the scenes that we find in the Theresienstadt film, there, there are scenes of work, um, quite detailed um, depictions of um, labour um, that the um, inhabitants of Theresienstadt were, of course, compelled to do there. They're shown to, to be doing it um, voluntarily, quite happily. Also scenes of leisure and sport. You mentioned the football match. And we have a very similar repertoire of scenes in another film that was made earlier that year, um, but wasn't finished. And so that film was um, made, it's often compared to, to the Theresienstadt film, but um, it's different in significant ways. Um, it was directed by another Jewish prisoner, his name is Rudolf Breslauer, and again on the orders of the camp's commander. So again, um, there was a, um, a team of inmates creating, well-trained team of inmates creating this film, but and so they had a certain amount of agency, but they, um, I think more than in the Theresienstadt film, but they were um, constrained by their position as prisoners in a camp. Um, the, the purpose was different. Um, Harun Faroqi in his uh, more recent film, in his 2007 documentary that he calls Respite, he basically makes this, this short film out of the rushes, the silent rushes that are what remains of the Vesterbork film. And he reads them closely and he proposes a thesis about them, namely that what the filmmaker was trying to do was to show how hard and how hard the slave labourers in the camp were working, how um, productive they were, and therefore to delay their deportation to the east. And the in terms of traces of the real in that film, we have again a lot of images of people smiling and pe people seeming to enjoy their work, seeming to enjoy um, their, their time in, in the camp, which are of course false images, mendacious images. But we have a really important scene that happens on the train platform and which shows a, a deportation um, to, to somewhere in the East, um, and which again has been um, historically very important. So, so an important trace of the real there, I think. Obviously, the Nazis attempted to erase a lot of the evidence after May 1945. Um, and so a lot of the footage we ended up with was newsreel footage taken immediately after the Nazis' defeat or as the Soviets and the British and the Americans and the, the French, um, you know, uncovered what had happened. So I, I, I'd like to talk quickly about maybe who who filmed the camps um, and maybe who might have seen this, this footage um, and how this erasure might have been a challenge to subsequent documentary makers. So I think um, there's a really important distinction to be made in this context between, on the one hand, the death camps or extermination camps, the Vernichtungslager or Todeslager, which were um, which came to being um, in most cases around 1941 and which were in occupied Poland and which were the sites where the systematic industrial genocide murder of Jewish, Roma, Sinti people and all the other groups of people that you mentioned earlier on um, was taking, taking place. And in these particular camps, in these extermination camps, most people were killed on arrival, so people didn't survive there for very long. And the names of the camps were, there were a great few of them, Chelno, Treblinka, Sobibor, Belzec, and then there were so-called hybrid camps at Auschwitz-Birkenau and Majdanek. So those are the, the death camps or extermination camps. In this, the second type of camp is the concentration camp. Um, and we'll come on to why this is an important distinction, but it is for understanding the visual legacy or non-legacy of, of the, the um, these particular camps. So that there were many concentration camps spread across the so-called greater, greater Germany, 
this has been the, the experiences of the diverse populations of these camps um, were not that they would be killed immediately on arrival, typically, but of course that happened to some of them. It was another kind of death that was prolonged, that was through labour, starvation, disease, beating, often shooting, etc. So um, examples of such camps would be Buchenwald, Bergen-Belsen, two that are well known, at, at least to um, British people. So in terms of the erasure of evidence, the Nazis closed most of the extermination camps in 1943, and they tried to cover their traces, for example, by planting forests or um, also digging up um, prisoners who, or digging up dead bodies, um, bodies of victims that had been buried and then burning them and disposing of the ashes. Um, there was a concerted attempt in those cases to conceal evidence, to um, erase erase traces. In the case of the concentration camps, less so insofar as um, the Allies, uh, the Soviet, American, British um, armies often um, came across concentration camps that had been, were still relatively intact, um, but had simply been abandoned by the, the SS, the people who were um, overseeing them. In terms of the challenge that these different types of camps present to filmmakers, as we'll talk about more when we come on to thinking about Claude Lanzmann's film Shoah, um, the Vernichtungslager, the, the um, extermination camps, the, um, uh, the camps in the former, in the occupied Poland, presented a particular challenge because, well, as Lanzmann says, um, there was nothing, um, there, there, there was no, um, no one photographed them, nobody filmed them, uh, they weren't liberated as such, there was no, there were no archival images in that sense generally, and so a filmmaker has to start from scratch and go to the places um, and look for survivors, rare survivors in those cases, because most of the people who, who witnessed what happened there were killed. But in the case of concentration camps, there were, um, yeah, so the, I think, as I think I've mentioned, the, the, um, these were filmed by um, and photographed extensively by the Soviets, Americans and British um, armies who um, came and liberated them. I think what's interesting to think about here is how a lot of the earlier documentaries were quite short. Um, so I'm thinking of um, a Croatian film, Yasenovac, made in 1945, and then 10 years later, uh, Alain René's considerably better known film, uh, Nuite Briard, Night and Fog, it's half an hour documentary about the Holocaust. Um, I think it's worth saying that neither of these films uh, really focuses specifically on Jewish suffering. Um, more talking about the the infrastructure of the the camps and how they worked and in the case of night and fog um how they were um if not necessarily concealed from the local population at least were able to sort of not become the focus of the the local population um in a way that you might have imagined um how did filmmakers sort of condense the horrors into such kind of brief works and you know was this brevity kind of useful in conveying conveying the horror that's that's a really interesting um question and quite a challenging one i found to think about um uh and also important because the films that we're going to talk about later on are um in many cases such long films um so 
one um, development in cinema history that's perhaps important just to just to flag up is the um, important art form of the court métrage or the short form documentary, particularly in French cinema in the post-war period, um, the way that was supported, promoted, um, for example, by uh, bills in cinemas that uh, um, ensured that there was always some kind of court-métrage that went before the, the main feature. Um, and I think that certainly helps. So th this, this form was much lauded by and defended by uh, French filmmakers. So I think that, that certainly helps inform the brevity of a film like Night and Fog and also of a film like... Um, the return, Le Retour, which was made 10 years before Night and Fog, is much less well known and directed by Henri Cartier-Bresson, who's better known as a, as a photographer, but was also a filmmaker. Um, and this, um, this film ha uh, similarly has a short, short, um, short form, it's about, it's about half an hour and long. Um, in the case of Yasunovac, which um, I've watched for the first time quite recently, um, what really struck me about the film um, was not only the recycling, the reworking and the reframing of propaganda footage, of Eustacia propaganda footage, um, by juxtaposing it, for example, with testimonies uh, by survivors of the camps, but also what is terrible and awful, but also interesting about that film is that there is yet there isn't yet any kind of established iconography or conventions or form for representing the horror of a concentration camp so the filmmakers are making it up as they go along and one of the things they do is um accumulate images of bodies that are and this is a completely overwhelming accumulation of images of dead bodies. They went in to the camp just after it had been liberated. And um, so there were bodies everywhere. And these are not um, bodies that are neatly arranged, for example, as they were in um, battlefield photography of the 19th century. These are bodies that are decomposing, that are that have limbs splayed out. Um, and they're used in, um, the, the power comes from the very quick, so it's a short film, but um, quick, um, uh, shots of these bodies that are accumulated, even they become a background for the, some of the titles of, of the film. I guess one of the things that's important about the return that links it to Yasanovac, um, Yasanovac ends with a call for vengeance and for justice. Um, and this is, this is um, timely because it's happening, it's coming out right at the end of the war and there is still a very keenly felt felt sense of we need to bring the perpetrators to and um, we need to prosecute them. And in Le Retour, the, the French film I mentioned by Cartier Bresson, um, which is made with an American, American team and supported by um, resistance organizations and so on, um, uh, there is a similar, from the same moment, made in 1945, and there is a similar concern for justice um, and in some cases for, um, for vengeance. There are, there are depictions of um, uh, former prisoners of the camps taking the law into their own hands and, um, uh, and uh, punishing um, their former captors and so on. Um, but more generally in that film, there is a, um, an attempt to, on the one hand, root out the perpetrators, but also to um, unify and to um, uh, reconcile, reunite 
the many different types of prisoners returning home from the camps. So the film doesn't, the film starts by showing us um, briefly um, some of the prisoners um, in the camps who had been um, liberated. So we have very similar images to those in Jasenovac and also those in Night and Fog. But then the film um, depicts their journey home and it attempts to, um, uh, or it doesn't insist on the differences between, for example, Jewish prisoners or um, uh, people, uh, prisoners of war or people who'd been in some of the other kinds of camps. So it's about trying to bring people together again, hence the um, lack of reference to and um, the specificity of the fate of Jewish people during, during the Holocaust. Um, Night and Fog, um, we have there some of the same images as in The Return, um, but we have formally a very different take. Um, and, and this comes from the way in which the um, the the 1950s. So this is a film that is made uh, mid 1950s, and it's a film about less about witnessing and documentation in the moment. It's a film about retrospective commemoration. So by 1955, the um, what were known as atrocity images are well known, are already well known, and um, what Night and Fog is trying to do is to shift the discussion on and to comment on its um, contemporary political situation. That middle of the 1950s, France is at war in, or in Algeria. René is working an anti-colonial message into that film. Um, so he's trying to um, both do justice, find a, a form that's adequate to the, the horrors of the concentration camps. It's not about the Vernichtungslager in the case of Night and Fog, but he's also um, uh, trying to comment on the contemporary political moments. Um, yeah. So one of the first long form documentaries made about the Holocaust was a, a French film called Chronicle of a Summer, which was directed by Edgar Morin and Jean Rouche, uh, which came out in 1961. Um, I haven't seen this film and in fact didn't know it uh, until uh, I was researching for this show, um, but it's often considered to introduce the figure of the Holocaust survivor. Um, and it's also sort of considered one of the first cinema verite films. And indeed that very concept forms a bridge between Alain René's Night and Fog and uh, Marcel Alfus's 1969 film, The Sorrow and the Pity, that we're going to come on to shortly. Um, so I wonder if you could um, just, just sort of talk a bit more about Chronicle of a Summer and who was in it and its significance. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I think it's important to mention it in the context of the, the history of um, Holocaust documentary, even though it's another French film, and I'm, I'm aware that we're, we're particularly um, paying attention to French films. Um, it's, it's not a Holocaust film as such, but it is, as, as you've said, it's, um, there's one particular scene that has become a really important um, landmark in the history or, of um, uh, Holocaust documentary. And this is a scene where um, a woman, Marceline Loridon Evans, who was a Jewish survivor of Auschwitz and various other camps, um, who went on to direct films and write, and actually later on made her own, um, made her own um, film about her experiences in Auschwitz-Birkenau. In any case, in Chronicle of the Sun Summer, there is an extended and um, extremely powerful scene where she 
talks and we could say bear, bears witness uh, in relation to her experiences in Auschwitz. -Birkenau. Um, particular incident with her, with her dad. Um, the critic Michael Rothberg has a uh, very um, film, um, Cinema Verité documents the emergence of the Holocaust survivor. So he's pointing out how the, um, with Cinema Verité, it's, it's enabled by new lightweight mobile camera and sound recording technology, which allows Morin and Ruche to film this very intimate testimony deposition that um, Loridan Yvans is given as she walks through the streets of Paris from a distance. So technically, the, um, the technology of Cinema Verité allows literally Cinema Truth um, allows for this um, type of recording of um, the testimony of a Holocaust survivor. So, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an important point, I think, that, that is between those survivor testimony, apart from the voiceover of Jean Quayrol, um, himself a survivor, a political prisoner, um, poet, writer. Um, he uh, writes with Chris Marker writes the commentary for Night and Fog. And um, so we could say it's a kind of testimony that's, that's there in his, um, in his commentary, but we have a very different type of filmed testimony um, in uh, Chronicle of the Summer. And this perhaps leads us on then to later um, filmed testimonies by um, uh, some of the people we see in Sharon and um, Sorrow of the Pity. Uh, it's also worth mentioning that uh, Chronicle of the Summer uh, comes out just before the images of Jewish survivors witnessing at Eichmann's trial are circulating all over the world um, in 1961. Um, so there are there's an important shift there in the visibility of and the filming of the, the Holocaust witness. Yeah, that's really interesting. Thank you. Um, just to remind our listeners, you're listening to Resonance 104.4 FM. This is Sweet 212, and I'm your host, Juliet Jakes. And this month, I'm talking to Dr. Libby Saxton about how documentary films uh, represented the Holocaust. Um, so we're going to move on now to um, the two most famous long works, I think, dealing specifically with the Holocaust. Uh, and again, they're both French films. So the first of them is Marcel Olfuls' film, The Sorrow and the Pity, 1969. And the second of them is uh, Claude Landsman's Shoah, which was released in 1985. Um, both of these films were very animated by the importance of capturing testimony before survivors died. Um, but they're doing sort of quite different things, I think. Um, the Sorrow and the Pity, Marcelo Fools was very concerned with how the French had behaved in the war um, and the mythologies that had grown up around uh, Vichy France. Um, the film makes quite a lot of the fact that France was the only country where the government didn't kind of fully surrender. Um, you know, many countries had a government in exile, often in Britain during the Second World War, whereas um, the Vichy regime, you know, kind of collaborated. Um, so Ophels is interested in the specific implications of that. Um, he's interested in you know, the mythology that had grown up about how many people were involved in the French resistance. Um, and it includes a long interview with uh, the communist politician 
uh, and later to be briefly Prime Minister of France, uh, Pierre Mendes France, that directly incriminates the French cinema industry, uh, both by talking about how cinema as entertainment carried on during the Vichy regime, but also about how uh, a number of French um, film professionals were involved uh, with the making of, of certain um, Nazi propaganda films. Um, so maybe we'll just spend a bit of time on the sorrow and the pity first before we move on to Shoah. So perhaps, um, you know, you would like to talk a bit about um, the specifics of how the sorrow and the pity depicted the Holocaust in a film that was about France during the war more generally. Um yeah, so so I think you've you've described its its main subject and its concern with the with occupied France really well, um, but it does address the Holocaust at several points um, with different levels of directness, um, and I think it does so in ways more similar to Chronicle of the Summer than to Night and Fog because of its concern with anti-Semitism with Jewishness. So. Whereas, um, as we've briefly mentioned in the films from 1945 to 1955, roughly, there, were, there was little um, direct um, engagement with the uh, particular um, experiences of, of Jewish people. Um, by the time we get to Chronicle of the Summer and also a decade later, Sorrow of the Pity, um, the experiences of Jewish people are very, very much in the foreground of these, of these films. Um, so there is throughout the um, four plus hours of the film, there is a lot of material on resurgent anti-Semitism, including in interviews, for example, by Mendes France, um, who was certainly suffered terribly from um, the anti-Semitic attitudes of um, various French um, uh, people, as he testifies um, in the film. Um, there are also, um, so one of the, the important components of Sorrow and the Pity alongside new interviews is archive material um, that is similar to Night and Fog, that is um, different from Chronicle of a, of a Summer, which isn't using archive, archive or material. Um, but uh, Offuse doesn't use, and I think for probably quite principled reasons, doesn't use um, archival footage of the, or photographs of the um, liberated concentration camps. That's not um, in the in the sorrow and the pity at all. What he uses instead are newsreels that reveal the extent of racism, anti-Semitism, um, both um, Vichy newsreels and German um, newsreels, um, some of which are extraordinary in their in their racism. Um, but similarly, the Vichy um, newsreels, uh, the the extent of um, to well, it's very difficult to grasp the fact that French people at the time were actually see were actually seeing this um, virulently anti-Semitic subject matter. Um, there is also in um, sorry, in the pity of an extract from Yudzus, and um, the end of the film is shown, which was a um, famously anti-Semitic film, which extraordinarily was shown in Clermont-Ferrand, which is the town that serves within the sorrow and the pity as a microcosm of the um, of France um, under occupation. Um, and there are um, important uh, testimonies mentioning, for example, um, so one of the one of the witnesses, um, Claude Levy, um, who himself was deported during the um, during the war um, to a to a camp. He mentions that France was full of concentration camps. There are no images of these camps. 
included in the film, but I think that's a really significant um, moment in um, the history of France's self-understanding of its own um, participation of in the in the war and um, the fact that the camps were not only concentration camps were not only on German soil but also on on French soil. Yeah, um, I think it's a really a really fascinating film, and I really do recommend that viewers seek it out. And in fact, uh, Milestone Films have put the whole of the sorrow and the pity online, and it's really really worth the uh, the four hours. I mean, it was a controversial film in some ways. It was commissioned for French television. Um, Ophuls returned with two two parts, two 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 hour long films, uh, which they initially refused to screen. Um, and the film is uh, is quite controversial uh, still, I think, in in France. Um, in some ways, there are there are parallels here with with Claude Landsman's Shoah, uh, which took eleven years to make. So he started filming it in nineteen seventy four. Um, he was commissioned uh, by Israeli officials to make the film. Initially, it was supposed to be two hours long um, and was supposed to be delivered within 18 months, telling the story of the Holocaust uh, from a specifically Jewish perspective. Um, they, um, the Israeli officials withdrew backing as the film got longer. Um, Landsman ended up shooting over 350 hours of footage and indeed subsequently made five more films uh, from the outtakes. Um, as you may imagine with a film that ended up becoming something of this scale, uh, there were financial problems as well as other difficulties that Landsman had in tracking down uh, some of the witnesses he wanted to talk to. He wanted to talk to survivors and perpetrators as well as people living uh, in Poland where the film is, um, the film mostly deals with the sites in Poland. So that includes Auschwitz-Birkenau, Treblinka and the Warsaw Ghetto. Um, and the film was quite badly received in Poland for its depiction of local complicity. Uh, but as you may imagine, it had a pretty huge um, international impact, including with a lot of um, high level politicians. So the French president, uh, Francois Mitterrand, attended the first screening in Paris in April 19, uh, 1985. Um, the Czech dissident playwright uh, and later President uh, Vaclav Havel watched it in prison, uh, and Mikhail Gorbachev arranged public screenings in the Soviet Union in 1989. Um, so Shoah was, um, you know, a film that well ahead of its release, I think, um, Landsman knew it was going to make uh, a huge impact. Um, and it imposed some quite important representational limits on on the events that it discusses. Um, but maybe that's that's enough for me. And Libby, you'd like to come in here and talk about what those representational limits were and the importance of them and how those limits were shaped by the Holocaust documentaries that had come before. Thank you. Um, in relation to the uh, connection between Sorrow and the Pity and Shoah, I think that's a useful um, thing to think about because there is a scene in the Sorrow and the Pity where Ophir's ends up visiting Lonsman's old school, so Lonsman, the director of Shoah, um, which was the Lycée Blaise Pascal in Clermont-Ferrand. When Lonsman was there during the war, he, so Lonsman was, uh, involved as a very young man in uh, resistance uh, against the occupying forces against the Germans and uh, in 
the sorrow and the pity, we have a very memorable interview with a couple of school teachers who don't quite remember or maybe weren't really paying attention and certainly seemed to lack empathy towards the um, progressive disappearance of their pupils during the second world, during the occupation, their pupils were, some of them um, were involved in the resistance and uh, were disappearing because they were, they were killed or deported. Um, and Lonsman, um, in his memoir, much later published memoir, comments on Sorrow and the Pity, which was clearly an important film for him. He, he was good friends with, with Offus. Um, but he, he is critical of that film. He, he says to present the town of Clermont-Ferrand as the film does, as a symbol of collaboration, is a sacrilege. And that, of course, is because of Lonsman's own involvement in, in the resistance there. I think that's unfair to Sorrow and Pity because I think it's um, does it offers a far more complex picture of um, uh, Clément Ferrand and pays a lot of attention to resistance activities as well as to uh, collaboration. Um, but this is Lonsman was certainly very aware of that film. It, they inter so so one of the key connections between Sher and Sorrow and the Pity has to do with interviews and um, the record seeking out of witnesses and the recording of, of interviews. Uh, there is a difference in that Lonsman spent longer, as you mentioned, Juliet, preparing and reading historically, preparing for interviews. He was working with a team of people. Um, and the questions that he asks in some respects are rather different from those in Sorrow and the Pity in that he's more interested in the concrete details of the um, particular process that the film is about. So his questions are perhaps less obviously uh, or, or sometimes the relevance isn't immediately clear. They're of a different nature quite often from the questions asked by Offus. Nosman is more present in the film, even more present, I think, than Offus. Um, in, so in relation to the focus of Shoah, which is clearly quite different from the Sorrow and Pity, uh, Shoah deals with something that Sorrow and the Pity doesn't really deal with, which is the the so-called Operation Reinhard camps or the extermination camps, the, the um, camps in occupied Poland that I mentioned earlier. And this is because Lonsman, in the course of his research, feels that they are the most important sites for understanding what the Holocaust was and specifically the uh, systematic industrial murder of um, Jewish people and particularly are foregrounded within Shoah for various reasons. Uh, he doesn't, unlike uh, Knight and sorry, unlike the Sorrow and the Pity, Lonsman, and the big gap in the film is its lack of references to Vichy, to the um, Vichy regime and to collaboration by France or to any camps in France. But it is a film that's not interested in the concentration camps. It's interested only in the um, Vernichtungslager and the extermination camps. And it's for this reason that Lonsman spends a lot of time, as you've mentioned, seeking out for a, a very rare kind of witness, namely Zonda Commando witnesses, members of the so-called euphemistically called special squads who were those employed to, um, to work in and around the gas chambers. And most members of the Zonda Commando were killed after a few months. Only a few survived, including, for example, some of the most famous witnesses in Shoah, uh, Simon Shrebnik, uh, Abraham Bomber, Philip Muller, and so on, um, and Lonsman erects them, and it is a choice, he erects them into privileged witnesses of the genocide because of what they saw, because they were the only people to have witnessed 
firsthand, apart from the SS, who have witnessed firsthand that process of killing. Um, there has been some very interesting work uh, done recently um, on the outtakes of Shoah. You mentioned how many hours of um, shot, how many hours of um, interviews were recorded. And the historical work that's been done on the outtakes, including most recently by Jennifer Cazenave, um, reveals the extent to which um, the, the prioritization of Zonderkommando witnesses was a choice made at a certain point during, during Kamai Lonsman and his editor, Ziva Postek, and other members, members of the crew. Um, one of the effects of this choice is that the many with women, with, with um, witnesses who are all largely absent from uh, uh, uh um, ended up as outtakes for, for um, uh, Shoah too because they were not, um, because of Lonsman's choice to privilege the Sonder Commander survivor. Shall I say something about uh, representation and um, the... the uh, We've only got about 10 minutes left actually, so I think we're going to have to move, move the conversation on. Um, Sure, sure, sorry. Yeah. We Okay, yeah, so I'll say that and then. Um, we could talk about um, Shoa all day, I think, and in fact, maybe it just deserves a show of its own, but um, I'm gonna have to move the conversation on now because we've got about 10 minutes left. Um, so uh, one of um, Landsman's contemporaries, uh, Jean-Luc Godard, um, made an extraordinary film in the late 80s and 90s called Histoires de Cinema, um, which, dealt in part with um, with the concept of cinema and the role that it had in the history of the 20th century and, you know, a kind of active role as well as just a role of, of recording. Um, so, you know, one of the things Goddard does here is places the Holocaust in the context of uh, wider cinema, including the mystifications of Hollywood cinema. Um, and you know, raises some questions about um, how reluctant people were to depict the camps during the war and the ability of cinema to continue in the face of these horrors. Um, you know, he's implicating cinema more than the image here. But I wondered if you'd just like to spend uh, a few moments, Libby, just expanding a bit more on um, on some of the ethical issues that um, that Goddard raised there. Um, yeah, I think it's an in, it's another interesting uh, example. I don't think we can necessarily think of Eastwood East Cinema as, as a documentary, strictly speaking, but we can think of it maybe as a video essay, and it's a film that uses plenty of documentary images. Um, so it, I think it fits it fits well in in this context. Godard and Lonsman have been have. have publicly uh, mentioned or commented on each other's work to a, to a small extent, um, but there's been a lot of commentary around the distinctions and the ethical implications of the distinctions between their, um, their different approaches to images and in particular the relationship between Holocaust and film. Uh, Godard is one of the people who has been critical of Lonsman's apparent skepticism towards representation, towards mimesis, um, which some critics are worried shades into a version of a prohibition, perhaps a religious prohibition on representation. Uh, so, so Godard um, likens uh, Lonsman's position to, um, to Adorno's, for example, and um, is concerned about 
about, about some of its implications. Perhaps the key or a significant difference between Shoah and Istuadu cinema is that Shoah, for a variety of reasons, some historical but some also ethical, issues archival images. So um, one reason is that the images of the concentration camps were already very well known by the time Bonsoir was making that film. But another important reason that he avoids archival images is because there were no um, archival images of the Vernichtungslager of the Operation Meinhardt camps, only of the concentration camps, which are not the subject of this film. But Lonsman also writes extensively about um, archive images as, or historical images as what he calls images without imagination. So images that um, perhaps don't leave anything to the imagination or images that are unethical insofar as they're showing something that doesn't um, merit to be shown that they're um, and that that does link to Adorno's reservations. Godard does something distinct um, but not not I don't think there's a binary opposition between their modes of representations. So in Histoire du Cinema it's made up of um, the, the whole thing is made up of, I guess we could say archival images, um, um, a, a wide variety of films are sampled or exerted, wide variety of pieces of music, um, uh, also paintings and so on. And there is a particular sequence in the first chapter of Histoire du Cinema where Godard talks about, and the, the context is that he is, he is claiming, he's, or he's developing a thesis that cinema has failed to honor its ethical obligation to bear witness to the Holocaust, which may sound complicated or confusing because of course, as we've talked about, there are um, there is much film of, at least of the liberated concentration camps. But in any case, Godard is making this, um, making this argument that, it, that um, cinema hasn't done enough, didn't do enough, failed in its duty. And what he does is he puts together um, or he uses what the redemptive powers that he attributes to montage. So he puts together diverse images. Um, in the case of the one particular sequence, um, images uh, showing a pile of corpses um, from uh, who, who, um, who were victims of a convoy from Dachau to, sorry, from Buchenwald to Dachau in April 1945. And he puts these images alongside um, an image from a Hollywood film. Um, this is Elizabeth Taylor um, in A Place in the Sun, um, and also a detail from a fresco by Giotto, um, which shows Mary Magdalene. So he's creating, he's not simply using an archival image in a straightforward way, an archival image of atrocity, but he's using montage, or he's trying to tap into the powers of montage to um, reinvest images of um, of the camps with with some kind of meaning some kind of truth through this multiple through this multiple image if you like so um, in that sense I think his approach is is not entirely opposed to um, Lonsman's both of them are critical of certain um, or, or careful about the way in which they're using images yeah we've um, we've just got a few minutes few minutes left um, we've just got a few minutes left, so we're going to have to conclude the discussion now. Um, you know, a lot of people would look at Shoah in particular and think it a conclusive documentary film because of the way it deals with the testimony of, um, of people involved. Uh, and of course, you know, at this point in 2021, we're reaching a point where the last 
Holocaust survivors are dying. Um, and I just wondered if we could just spend a few minutes thinking about how this might affect the way the events are memorialized and portrayed on film. I mean, there's a worrying counterpoint to one of the first films we discussed. Um, a director called Yakov Sedlow released a film in Croatia in 2016 called Yesenovats, The Truth. Um, and I haven't seen this film, um, but I it's sort of described as a revisionist and anti-communist take on the events and of course you know the history of communism in the former Yugoslavia is very bound up with um with the second world war uh, and the anti-fascist league of Croatia um accused the director of inciting ethnic intolerance and promoting holocaust denial um so that's a big anxiety of course with the generational memory of the holocaust the lived memory of it fading um but I wondered if we might just spend a couple of minutes um thinking about how much more documentary film about the Holocaust there might be from here and what what we might expect or even hope to see. Yeah that's that's a really troubling example um, I guess and um, your, your, your comments on the uh, the continuation of Holocaust denial of Holocaust revisionism um, it strikes me that that perhaps one of the primary uh, aims or, or primary duties of um, cinema in relation to Holocaust remains countering that denial, just as it has been um, right from the beginning. And um, yeah, the, so the one related uh, perhaps trend or um, wave within contemporary um, filmmaking that relates to the Holocaust is the way in which uh, filmmakers uh, particularly experimental filmmakers are reappropriating and rethinking um, archival images. So some of the first images that were, were filmed of the camps, but also propaganda images, um, such as those that are the Ustasha images used in Yatanovac. And um, rereading these images and whether they are propaganda images or uh, images by the Allies and trying to uh, reinvest them with some kind of truth, significance, importance, power for the present day moment. So I think that's an important, um, the, the notion of film as testimony may, remains um, very important within the context of, of contemporary attempts to counter denial. Um, one other interesting recent development um, that, that relates to or responds to the passing away of um, Holocaust survivors um, is the uh, the continued efforts to gather and film testimonies, particularly not just spoken, uh, not just written testimonies, but videoed testimonies. This has been going on since the 1970s, at least, also to some extent earlier. But um, more recently, there have been so there, there are various organisations that have collected huge thousands and thousands of testimonies of video videotaped survivors. And uh, there are recent um, efforts to create uh, 3D representations, 3D films of survivors and also holograms of survivors, which, um, or perhaps I should say who, um, uh, allow uh, people today to um, encounter a witness in a way that where they appear to be living. Um, these, are, these are forms of resurrection or continued life, perhaps, these 3D and uh, holographic representations. Yeah, and I think the um, the ethical 
and I think the ethical dimensions of that will continue to um, evolve and, and be discussed. And unfortunately, we've run out of time, so it'll have to be a conversation for another day. Um, so Libby, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you very much, Juliet. Um, it's been a pleasure. Um, listeners, thank you for joining us here on Resonance 104.4 FM. Um, just a reminder that you can find us on SoundCloud and iTunes. You can find us on Twitter at sweet underscore 212. Um, and we will be back in the same time, same place next month. So see you then. Goodbye. <laughs>